Welcome to Pod So One. This is the second half of our unfiltered conversation with FBI spy catcher Dmitry Drujinsky. And if you haven't listened to part one, I encourage you to pause this and listen to episode five first. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy part two. Do you still travel much, Dimitri? No, no. I don't fly anymore. I stopped flying several years ago. And this is something very, 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 very important. I, I, you know, over the years I flew, did a lot of flying all over the world, you know. So for many people, Going on a plane, oh man, it's exciting. Not for me, that's old stuff. But the main thing is, you're so restricted now. You cannot take this with you, you cannot take that. Yeah. I cannot take my Swiss Army knife, I can take my even cigar cutting tool, or I cannot take my lighter on the plane. I mean, and then also, you have to take off your shoes and walk in. I, I refuse to do that. Yeah. I don't take off my shoes. What I do is I walk there, okay, sit down here. I sit there, I take off my shoes, they take them, run them to the machine, but I don't walk on the filthy floor in my socks, and most people don't care. They just take off their shoes and walk. Mm. And then they put on the shoes, you know. Yeah, a lot changed and then after 9-11. Another thing, I have to stand up like that, and they have to check me out. Yeah. And I feel like a, like a criminal because I... I used to do that to people when I was in the FBI. I used to search them like that, you know, when yeah, I arrested them. And now, I mean, now they're doing it to me. So I, I don't like flying, you know. Mm. And then the seats are getting smaller and the leg room is shorter. And they bigger. don't feed anymore. In, in some places, if you want something to eat, you have to pay for it to, to drink something. Yeah. Did you hear about, what, a year or a year and a half ago, one airline had... You had to pay a little fee to go to the bathroom. Did you? No. Oh yeah, yeah. It was on the news. Yeah, I don't know if they went through it. Maybe they just had the. They wanted to do it, but I guess people objected, so they didn't. That's But to go to the bathroom, you have to pay. You know? Yeah. So I don't fly anymore. If I want to go on vacation somewhere, I drive. I don't mind driving. Cool. Well, you've done a lot of traveling. Oh, I did a lot. Many lifetimes <laughs> worth. Yep. I did, yeah. yeah. You know, one time I, my partner and I flew to Yemen, to, to Sana'a, Yemen. It took us almost 24 years, uh, 24 hours flying. We flew on three different airlines until we got to, to Yemen, to Sana'a, Yemen. Just grueling flight on wow. And the bad thing was when we arrived, whatever, let's say we arrived in London, well, usually we fly at night, the, the night, we leave here in the afternoon, late afternoon, arrive there the next day. We arrive there in the morning, and check out and everything. We get there, everybody has slept, had a good night's sleep, they had a good breakfast, they come, and they expect us to meet with them and work, start working, yeah. we're like zombies, you know. And of course the FBI was not, uh, not very generous with us on flights, you know, like long flights, like other agencies, when you fly like that, they put them in business class, you know. We had to be in, in coach. Mm. Yeah. So Why would they, why do they fly you at night? Pardon me? Why did you fly at night? Because you leave in the afternoon, and by the time you arrive there, it's, oh. it's morning. You know. Yeah, um, I used to live in Kuwait when yeah. I was a kid, and when we'd go from Texas from Houston to Kuwait, it was just 
a whole day of. Yeah. of I was in Kuwait. I was a couple times uh, before the invasion, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, Kuwait. One time I was there. We had for three days. We had a sandstorm. Oh, was what was brutal. Everything's like. But uh, you know, the last day I was there. Last time, the temperature reached. 125 degrees during the day and uh, and we walked from the embassy to the hotel was intercontinental hotel we walked there and the interesting thing is by the time we went from the embassy to the hotel at, at noon you you're perspiring it's hot but but we're drying up also because it's so dry there the air yeah. is dry so by the time we got to the hotel we're not even yeah. wet you know it's exactly what it was like when i was because, there yeah you know, we're drying up as we were walking there Sounds like Las Vegas. Yeah, very dry. Yeah. But you know, in that uh, Kuwait, uh, I was, I think one of my hotel rooms was on the fifth floor, and it was facing a big, big parking lot with a lot of cars and everything. And uh, I had a picture taken there, one, two pictures. I took a picture of everything. And then the next day when, uh, when there was a sandstorm, I took a picture, it's almost like, like they put somebody put a gray, screen in front of my camera you know mm. the same place and then when the Iraqis invaded Kuwait they showed that picture somebody some photographer was some newsman was in I guess in the same room where I was he took pictures of uh, Iraqi soldiers busting open the cars that were there and stealing things and all that and I said hey, this is this is the right same view that they had from my uh, picture you know Whoa. of the of the parking lot there and but you know, remember the three towers there with the big... Yep, the Kuwait Tower yeah. with the balls. The ball. Did you ever go in the ball? Yep. Uh, it's a, it's it's a, a restaurant. restaurant. Yeah. yeah, and it spins around. The best shrimp, the best and biggest shrimp I had in my life was in that... Oh, really? Uh, yeah. I don't think and I had the was, shrimp. And it was interesting because we're working with a Kuwaiti colonel, full colonel, you know, in the intelligence, you know. And most of, and he never wore the uniform. He always wore the white thing, you know. So you could, if you saw him, you could not tell his... The Dishdasha? Yeah. So anyway, so there were four of us, I think, FBI agents, four of us. So because I spoke Arabic, I always sat in the front with him and spoke. And the other two sat in the back. And uh, But he spoke pretty good English, too. And he loved basketball. He knew everything mm. about basketball. He knew all the basketball players and... Uh, you know Jordan and everybody yeah. and they talk. the other two guys knew some basketball he'd chat with them but anyway so he took us around and then he invited us for dinner to this globe there and uh, it was interesting when we arrived at the gate there was a gate there with the guard and so uh, he was asking the reservation he said Bessemin Bessemin in whose name Bessemin and uh, the colonel said, Bism Dawla, the national security. And the guy jumped, oh, Fadl, Fadl, he said it, Fadl, please, please, come in, come in. <laughs> he said, in the name of national no security, way. in whose reservation? National security. <laughs> oh, please, please, come in, come in. And, and then we had dinner there. And then they used to get it from the Gulf there, the shrimp. The best and the biggest, I mean, the, sh the shrimp were huge, you know. Mm. Uh, great, you know, so we had a great dinner there, and uh, then they also went on another little island there um, on, on a Sunday, uh, just we had to take a little boat to get there, and he had a cabin there, 
They rented the cabin and spent the, but the sand was so hot they could barely walk in it, you know. We had to run towards the water and get in the water, run back to the cabin. Man, it was incredible, uh, the heat. Uh, but in that Gulf, uh, a big business used to be their pearl, pearls, mm -hmm. pearl diving. Right. And the, these uh, Kuwaitis, they did not have masks. Uh, I think they had masks, but they didn't have tanks or anything. They just take deep breath and go down, you know. And of course, after a while, their lungs were really built up. But I understand also from all that pressure, many of them did not live long, you know, mm, because right. eventually it killed them. But they used to dive there, get the pearls, come come up, come back, and they used to sell those natural pearls. not, not the, and, and then when the Japanese started doing the cultured pearls business, cut down on their business and eventually the Kuwaitis stopped doing that, you know. And they went into shrimping and other things, you know. Yeah. Oil, I guess, probably. And uh, But uh, but they used to do that diving and then getting, just take a deep breath and go and spend six, seven hours underwater. No, I'm just joking. I was going to say, maybe like five minutes, maybe? Two, yeah. three, five minutes, whatever, yeah. you know. Just, yeah. But the changes they, in pressure. They, uh, they built up the... Uh, capability of holding their breath right. for so long, you know. Yeah. Anyway, so a lot of interesting things, but I you know, when the Kuwaitis, when the Iraqis moved in and they started to destroy a lot of things, one thing I was hoping they would not destroy those three towers, that they did not, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it would have been a shame to destroy those. Yeah. Uh, that was but that was funny with that, too, and when the, the guy said, in whose name, Ism mean? Amin Dawla. Totally, see, totally. Your Arabic's very good. I just want to mention one thing. Whenever you're ready to continue, I'm at your disposal. Okay. Let's go. Let's do it. Daniel and I both read your book, Life Experiences of a Youth from Palestine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of my favorite stories in that book is at the training academy for the FBI. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were passing around various samples of illegal drugs. Yeah. Okay. When we were going to the academy, uh, they used to teach us, of course, a lot of things. And so one day, uh, they had an agent come from headquarters, come to us, to talk to us about drugs. And when he came uh, and talked to us, he had a whole bunch of samples of different drugs in test tubes. They're seal sealed test tubes. And so he'll talk about one. Uh, describe it and then pass it to the first guy in the seat and then the guy would look at it and pass it on until and to the end of the class and then return it and then next thing. When, when he talked about marijuana, uh, he gave us the tube where the tube, I was sitting in the front row, we were sitting there by uh, alphabetically, so Druzhinsky was in the front row. So I got the test tube and I saw the marijuana leaves and the seeds and I thought Tell the guy who's sitting next to me, the agent next to me, I said, you know, I used to grow that back in Palestine. And you could hear a pin drop. The, the counselor paled. He probably figured he'll be fired. The guy who came to give us the lecture paled. He thought he'll be fired. How did they get this drug? He's not only drug user, but he, drug, he, was, he was planting it. So everything, and, so everything, and then I had to explain myself. I said, when I was in Palestine, we used to have birds, and I had, uh, had some uh, uh, canaries. And in Palestine, they don't have this hard 
bird feed and uh, squirrel feed and all that. No, you go to the market, you go to the hardware store, you get half a kilo or a kilo of uh, marijuana seeds, and that's what the birds ate, what's that, what right. you fed to the canaries, you know, and other songbirds, you know. And of course, in the war not warm weather, I used to hang the birds outside a little bit, the cage, so that they'll get some sun. And as you all know, if you had birds at one time, they, when they jump around, they knock out some seeds out of the cage. Well, I used to hang the birds outside, and some of the seeds used to fall in the garden. And they, you know, grow, some of the seeds would grow. And so I had these beautiful marijuana plants, you know. And all the years that I had the marijuana plants, I mean, talking about legal, I had them there. I never even tried to smoke them or anything, you know, just, but I knew that there were people use them for drugs. But uh, so when I explained all that, then you could see the relief on everybody's face and including uh, the blood came back to the counselor's face and the other guy, they knew that I wasn't a druggie or anything. It just happened to, to be like, like that. But then it was legal to buy, uh, to buy the marijuana seeds uh, and uh, th that's what people fed to the birds, you know. And then also legally you could plant a little bit of marijuana for, for yourself, you know. So long as you don't plant two or three acres, you know, and start selling it, you know, but if right. you plant a little bit for yourself. And a lot of people used to smoke hashish, what they call hashish in Arabic. Right. You probably know that word, yeah. Uh, so that, that, that was an interesting story. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that it shook them, because that was during the director Hoover's time. Right. And uh, they could kick you out just like that, you know. I mean, mm -hmm. something wrong. And it's like... Uh, one time there was an agent, uh, there was a story, an agent, uh, every class, just before graduation, they used to get all dressed up nicely, uh, special, you know, and go to meet the director Hoover and shake his hand. Uh, you, you probably didn't have to do that, did you, Al? No. My, my class was the last time not to do it. I mean, the first class not to do it. Before that, all the class. And what they used to do, they used to bring a clean handkerchief with them. They all stand outside the room of Mr. Hoover. So one would go in one at a time. So the guy take a handkerchief, wipe his hands, make sure they're not sweaty, because Director Hoover didn't look like sweaty hands, you know. So they wipe the hands, come in there. Hello, Mr. Hoover, how are you? And my name is so-and-so. And then Tolson was next to him and he'd shake his hand. And sometimes Hoover would ask him a question or not, and then thank you. The guy would turn around and leave, you know. Sometimes the guy would turn and leave, and there was Director Hoover's bathroom there. <laughs> He'd take the wrong door, go in and come back again. Sorry, Director. <laughs> but anyway, and sometimes uh, one guy went through, and, and uh, the class went through, and then uh, Hoover mentioned something about who's that guy with the pinhead? And then everybody, shook, they had to find out who's the pinhead. They had to measure a guy's heads and see <laughs> if somebody had a small head or what. Who's the pinhead? What did he mean by that? You know, it, it was very serious. So I'm sure if I'd gone through and shaken his hand, he probably said, "Who's the guy with the funny accent?" You know, something like that. But did uh, you but, ever meet Hoover? No, I never met him. No, no. I never met him. But I have his letter. Right. And I was working the annex there uh, when uh, when he died, and we saw the. Cortege going by and all that. But no, I, I never met him. But I have, I have very, very high respect for him. Some people say nasty things about him. Unfortunately, it's the media, a lot of media, the liberals or people don't like us, the FBI or law enforcement or 
or any decent people, you know, they say nasty things about them. And like some, not too long ago, they came out to a movie where they made them homosexual right. and they showed a picture of them wearing a dress, you know. And now you can put a dress on anybody, you know. It's, it's, it's just terrible, terrible what they do. But, but one thing the media didn't like him was because the media think that they're like they're gods or kings, you know. If they come to you with a story, you have to genuflect and give them a story. Yes, what would you like to know? Well, when they used to go to Director Hoover to get a story, a lot of times, if the case is still being investigated, he'll say, no, I can't. The investigation is still going on. And they didn't like that, you know. They wanted him to give him a story, but sometimes he would not give. So they were turned against him, you know. Right. And slowly it built up, built up, you know. And, but he didn't, he didn't care. He just won't tell him. I cannot tell him. Rightfully so, because the investigation is still going on, you know. Anyway, so... But no, I, I, I never had the pleasure of meeting him. But I had very, very high respect for him, you know, because he tr created a fantastically great organization, you know. Yes, he did. Fantastically. Yeah. yeah, so from your book, uh, you have a few stories about uh, toys that you made for yeah. your, uh, your children. Tell, yeah. us, tell us your favorite uh, story about making toys uh, for kids. Well, one of the, well, there were several, but one of the big ones was uh, I made a, a scooter, you know, a scooter that you put one foot on it and you push with the other. Right. Well, I, I'm a very uh, handy guy, you know. Uh, and so all my life, even in Palestine here, my dad, my brother uh, were like that, you know. My children, thank God, grew up like that. So, and I also a, a collector and a saver. I collect things. Like to say if there's a two by four that I have, I don't throw it away, I just keep it, you know. If, if I find nails or screws or bolts or washers, I save them, you know, because sometimes I can use them. So one time when my kids, my two sons were still young, uh, I don't think they started high school, uh, grand, uh, kindergarten yet, maybe kindergarten. Anyway, I decided to make them a scooter. So that was my first house in Falls Church. So what I did was I got a, a two by four and uh, I, I cut out two, uh, parts out of it, a car part of it, to put a wheel in there, you know, and make like a groove in it to put the wheel. And then the other one, I got another two by four, made it the upright one. And then I made uh, a hinge for it from two, I had some pieces of aluminum, strips of aluminum. I bent them, drilled holes in them, and made a hinge out of it. You know, mm. So I, I screwed one into the longer part and one to the upright part. And then I put a pin and I had a hinge. Right. Then I, the kids had a tricycle that was not good anymore, it was broken. So I had to get rid of it. But before throwing it away, I removed the wheels from it. The wheels and one of the rods that run there. Uh, so I, I got those wheels, I put one wheel in the back and I put a pin through it. And then I put another one in the front. And again, I put a pin in it. Then for the top, I cut out a groove on the, on the two by four and I got a piece of old broom handle and nailed it on top, and screwed it on top for the handles, you know, and I had a good scooter for it. Well, I was working on it for a while, you know, I didn't do it in five minutes, you know, and uh, I had a full basement in, in my, I had a small Cape Cod house, I had a full basement and that basement was not finished at all, you know, it was just concrete, you know. And I had my workbench there, and my tools and all that. So at that, that, at that time, I smoked a pipe. So when I had time off from work, I'd go down there, 
and work on it. And the, that basement had a walkout door to the back of the yard. There were like four steps there, and you go out. So I used to leave the door open, and my dog would my dog would go in and out and hang around there. So while I was working, and so my kids would be playing with other kids from the neighborhood. That they run in, as kids do, they run into there and come to me, and and the kids say, "Hey, Mr. Dushinsky, what are you doing?" I say, "I'm building a very very special secret toy for my kids." Oh, okay, and they'd go out to play. And then again, come, come back again a lot of time. Hey, Mr. Dushinsky, what do you do? Oh, I'm making a very, very special, very secret toy for my kid. Oh, okay. So finally, one day, I finished it. Everything was ready to go. So I brought it out in the front street. It was, I think, Saturday or Sunday. Anyway, I brought it out in the front street, uh, the street, in, you know, in the front of our house. And I had to show my kids how to ride it. So I showed them how to do it. And uh, all the kids were gathered around. Hey, guess what? This is Mr. Dushinsky's very special uh, secret uh, toy that he. So they all came around, and I told my kids how to show uh, to, to ride it. And I started riding it a little bit, and then, then of course the, the second son, and then after that, the other kids. Hey, Mr. Dushinsky, can I try it? Can I try it? Of course, yeah. So before I knew it, all the kids were running. I should have charged them a fee, you know, <laughs> even at the penny, I could have made a fortune. Anyway. So, so they were all having fun. The problem with that was, after a while, my kids could not have it. Everybody was borrowing it. You know? <laughs> but I was happy that to see all the kids were having fun. But then one of the fathers came to me and said, oh, so that's the secret toy that you've been building. So what happened was the kids were going home and say, hey, Dad, Dad, Mr. Dushinsky is building some secret, very special <laughs> toy for the kids. And then, then another dad came to me, oh, that's a secret toy. <laughs> so the word was spread around without me even knowing about it. But the kids were talking to each other, to their parents and all that. So that's, that's one of the toys that I built, you know. And they had it for several years, you know. And I, I don't know what happened eventually, you know. But, uh, but it was great. It was just all scrap wood, scrap wheels, you know, scrap handlebar. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and it was fun, yeah. It was fun. But, but later on, I was helping uh, as, uh, as the kids got a little older, when I was building something for them or something else, I, sometimes I'd let them help me a little bit. Uh, and so then they felt that, oh, my dad and I built this, you know, my dad and I made this, you know. Uh, one thing, a neighbor across from me had, uh, Bob, Bob Doan had a nice ping pong table in his basement. He loved to play ping pong, but his wife did not care about it. So... That's, I think that's another story in the book. So uh, he found out that I play. So quite often he used to invite me to play. And he, we used to go fishing together and play ping pong. And I got pretty good at it. And I'm also amphibious, you know. I like to use both hands. I mean, I'm, I'm bidextrous. <laughs> I used to uh, like to play. I'd play with my right hand. But I, I like symmetry. So I, I used to play with my left hand sometimes. I used to get pretty good at it too. Well, anyway, the kids were young. And they'd come and they want to play also. So, but the rackets were a little heavy for them, and big. The handles are big for their hands, small hands, and they're a little heavy. So what I did was I made them rackets. I, I got some old uh, plywood, and I cut out. I put a racket on it. I cut out the outline, and I cut it on my uh, saw bandsaw, and then uh, I cut two of them, and then polished. You know, sanded them and all. Then I. Uh, got some uh, thin cord and I wrapped it around the handle you know, very, very tightly, very tight. I made the handle out of it. And then I painted them red, dark red. 
And it, they're beautiful. They're exactly the same size and shape as a regular ping pong racket, but they're about one third the weight or less. And the, the handle, the grip was much smaller. Right. So the kids could play. So they'd come and play ping pong. They, they loved it. And uh, so that's another yeah, it's thing that's that I And again, scrap wood, scrap string, you know, and uh, a little paint that I had left over from before. And, uh, so, so I made a lot of toys. Like back in Palestine, we used to make firearms. You know, uh, my brother and I loved hunting, and of course, especially after the war, nobody could afford to buy a gun or, or a BB gun or anything. You know, so you either made your own. If you want to have something, you either make it yourself, or you don't have it. So we used to make shotguns uh, from scrap. Get a, a nice strong steel pipe, and then we block the end of it, one end of it drill a hole for the fuse, uh, for the primer fuse, get a piece of scrap wood, cut out the stock, mount the pipe onto the stock, and then we used to make a, a homemade uh, striker for the, for the cap, you know. And uh, the only thing we had to buy was powder, black powder. Right. We used to buy the powder, and sometimes we used to buy some shot, but usually we used to buy powder and maybe get some piece of wood, uh, metal or something, put them in there. So, and then for the cap, we could not buy caps. So we used to buy these matches, they're Italian matches. They're small matches. Uh, I think they're paper with wax around them and the little red head on it. And this, this match, you can light it anywhere. Uh, you don't have to light it on the striker on the matchbox. You can light it on a piece of wood or the floor. So we used to remove those uh, red tips you know, score them away, put them on the little hole, and then put the striker on it, which is held with rubber bands, made of wire, held with rubber bands, and then we'll pull the trigger, and that raised it, and when it fell down, it would hit those little red uh, tips of the match, they, they flare up, the, the flare would go into the hole of the powder, and would fire. And we had, the sh we had homemade shotguns, you know. One time one almost killed me, you know, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it blew up in my face. But uh, anyway, so we used to make that. Uh, we used to do a lot of things. Uh, but again, uh, you know, like all kids uh, around the world play soccer or what we call soccer, they play football, you know. Well, of course, during the war, uh, nobody could afford, not even think about buying a toy, you know. The, the only money you could save was to buy some food and stuff like that, you know. Uh, so anyway, so what we did was, of course, as kids, we wanted to play soccer or football. So we collected a whole bunch of old rags, some old socks, stuffed them into each other, sewed them up with a needle thread, and we had a soccer ball. And then split the kids in two teams, and we had a good soccer games, you know. Yeah. <laughs> just running around, having a great time, just kicking around this uh, rag ball, you know. Uh, so what do you do? But yeah. you've got to improvise. Uh, like uh, in the Marines, uh, the recon was to say, improvise, adapt, overcome. You know, and uh, you improvise, adapt, overcome, and you do it. <clears throat> Have you seen the movie uh, Heartbreak Ridge? Yes. Yeah. He he used to tell it to his troops. All the time. Yeah, improvise, yeah. adapt, overcome. You know, and uh, we'll had that slogan when I was in recon also. You know that that recon that unit that he was in. I was in that unit. Oh, Second Recon, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Literally, yeah. Yeah. Uh, because one time I was sitting, flipping uh, with my wife, sitting in the living room, flipping the channels, and uh, that came on. 
Uh, so I, of course I watched the Marines. I, I like the movie. You know. So I'm watching, and he has, was assigned to Second Recon. I jumped up. I said to my wife, "The Second Recon. This is what I was. This is what I was. I was in Second Recon." You know? She said, "Okay, okay." You know. Anyway, so so we used to uh, improvise, and you know uh, the the Marines are sort of like the FBI or the FBI like the Marines. The, like I mentioned before, the FBI don't give you much money, like we travel coach instead right. of business class. Well, the Marines also did not have much money, you know, uh, because we're part of the Navy, but the Navy used to give us some money, but we didn't have, we could not have a lavish uh, situation. You know? So a lot of times if, if our uniform got, like if we're going to the woods and something, you get caught on a branch or something, you get a rip. Well, you just get your sewing kit and sew it up, you right. know. Yep. Your uh, your field jacket gets ripped or something. Get a field, uh, get your, uh, we used to have little sewing kits, you know. But in other places, you get ripped, they just rip it, throw it away, give, they get a new one, you know. Not in the Marines, you know. So, not, uh, yeah, not in the Marines. No. And especially in recon, you know. But I loved, I loved the recon. It was two and a half years that I did recon. You know, a recon is something like special forces of the Marines. Yeah, absolutely. We don't, we don't have Marine uh, special forces, you know, but it was sort of like that because we did a lot of extra things and you know, uh, going behind the enemy lines and all that stuff. You know. Yeah, they, uh, they would call it special operations today, but yeah, it's well, it's, whatever. Yeah, and uh, anyway, so so I did that, and uh, it was so exciting when I saw that the guy went to second recon. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, anyway, uh, so tell us about uh, Bay of Pigs. You were actually at Guantanamo during... Oh, Guantanamo, no, during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Oh, Cuban Missile yeah, Crisis, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was... Uh, I did two and a half... Uh, I was in uh, recon, and then uh, they sent me... Uh, the Marines had a school uh, w close to the base where I was, and it was called Interrogation Translation School. And what they did was uh, there, they taught refresher courses for French and Spanish. So the Marines who had uh, some background in French or Spanish that could qualify to go to that course to learn, to, to brush up on the language and then also learn interrogation techniques, how to interrogate prisoners of war and then how to interrogate prisoners of war in, in a foreign language. So interrogate them in French or interrogate them in Spanish. Well, I, I was sent there, uh, asked if I wanted to go there for French because I'm fluent in French. You know. So I went there and for the two courses, you know, the French and the interrogation. So the French, I knew more, much, much, much more French than my instructors. <laughs> <laughs> so at the beginning, they're a little bit embarrassed, but then they're happy that I was there because I was correcting their material and the, what they're saying and all that. So needless to say, I came out first in the class. Then also interrogation techniques, I came out first also in my group. So we had two classes, Spanish and French. So I came out first in both. Then I went back to recon. Then they requested me to come to the school to join them as an instructor there. So I, that's when I left the recon. Wow. I went to that interrogation translation school. Well, I was there, so I was teaching French and interrogation techniques in the French language. So one time uh, there was a big, going to be a big, big operation, uh, field operation in Vieques, which mm -hmm. is an island close to Puerto Rico, you know, Vegas. And Marines used to go train there. So they, they had a big exercise, and they asked if I could go there posing as a Soviet army officer, like I'm lost somewhere, walking around, 
they gave me a legend to start to study who I am and what I do, and then released me in the woods, in the boondocks. And the idea was for the Marines to capture me and to see what they'll do with me. And hopefully, what, when they capture me, they realize who I am, hopefully they'll take me to G2, to, to the intelligence center, you know, right. so that I'll be debriefed, interrogated, whatever, you know, processed, uh, or might try to kill me or do whatever, you know, but hopefully they'll do the right thing to take me to G2. You know. So they gave me a legend, like two and a half page story, who I am, where I'm from and all that. And so I went to Vegas with, uh, and I was just went with another uh, group of people, you know, agent, uh, Marines, you know, but I was not attached to them, you know, I just went with them. So for three days, all I did was uh, get up, eat chow in the morning, and go to, uh, chow is another story I have to tell about. But I used to go to the beach, it was beautiful sandy beach, nice clear water. You could walk almost a quarter of a mile and the water would be only up to here. It was mm. nice clear and beautiful sun. So I, all I had to do was just swim and lie on the beach and read my uh, notes, you know, study. And the day when, uh, then the day came when we were supposed to have the training exercise. The night before, President Kennedy gave the ultimatum to Khrushchev and said, you either get the missiles out or, or else, you know. And the next morning, instead of going to, to be released in my foreign uniform and all that, they put me on in a plane with grenades and ammunition and all that, they sent me to Guantanamo Bay mm -hmm. because we thought we were going to go to war. So they said, and at that time, the island was surrounded by U.S. Navy ships and planes were flying in and out. They could land there in Guantanamo Bay, going in and out. and. Uh, I mean, we could sink the whole island just like that if we went to war, you know. But, so I went there for, uh, st stayed there two weeks because I attached to a unit that went there, you know, not because they needed me there. And so, so I stayed there for two weeks and then after two weeks they sent me back to stateside, you know. But I was there during that very, very hairy situation because they thought we'd go to, immediately to war, you know, and not only war, the nuclear war, you know. Right. Thank God uh, that Khrushchev saw the light and uh, did the right decision to pull out the missiles. You know, uh, so that's how I got them Guantanamo Bay. But uh, Bay of Pigs, no, I was never involved. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I was in the Bay of Sows. No. <laughs> anyway, uh, anyway, so but that 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 was interesting. Yeah. Oh, did you know that I fought in World War Two? You didn't know that, did you? Al uh, did know that. The, yeah. the math doesn't work out for me. No, no, no. Uh, anyway, uh, when I was, like I mentioned before, I made two med cruises, what you call Mediterranean cruises, two six-month cruises of the Sixth Fleet. Well, the second time when I was in the, the Mediterranean there with the Sixth Fleet, uh, they, uh, the, the, a book came out uh, uh, about World War II, uh, the, the, the Longest Day. I, have you read it? I don't know if you guys read it. I'm sure you heard about it. The Longest Day. It was a very, very interesting book. It was a very good book. It came out in paperback, you know. And so Hollywood decided to make a movie of that uh, about World War II and the, the landing of the Allies. And all. So Daryl Zanuck is a famous uh, movie producer. He was a little, probably a little shit like that. Uh, but he smoked <laughs> nice big cigars, you know. He was a little guy and big cigars. And he, he used to run around in swimming trunks. Uh, but he was very, very, he made some very good movies, that old Zanuck. Anyway, so he was there. And so he came to the Marines uh, that were on board of this 
six fleet ships and asked our commander, uh, commander in chief, uh, to borrow the Marines to do the landing scenes for that movie. Right. And so the, the, our commander ag agreed to let us do that. And so for three days we were making landing scenes, you know. And the first day it was nice sunny days like today and everybody's smiling as we're running towards the beach. <laughs> and they said, scrap that, you know, in, in combat, you know, soldiers don't come smiling, <laughs> they're miserable and they're afraid of being killed and dying. And all the, so scrap that. Second day was a little bit rougher and all that. Again, not good. The third day, it was miserable. They ran around, uh, ran around in those, what they call the mic boats, those landing craft, mm -hmm. you know, that open in front. Ran us around for about two hours and the water's choppy and guys were getting sick and throwing up and we all were miserable, you know. And then they let us, and it was overcast, and then they let us land and that was perfect, you know. So we were landing there and uh, they told us ahead of time that there will be mines in the water. But they said, don't worry about it. They blow them up once in a while to, to simulate that uh, German artillery shells are falling there and blowing up, you know, right. or mortars, you know. And also, but don't worry, no, no, nobody will get hurt, you know, it's, it's placed in such a way. And there are American uh, frogmen and French frogmen, two ships there, they're the ones who were placing those underwater demolitions, you know. Anyway, so then uh, he told us also that they'll be shooting at us with special machine guns, but they're like air-powered machine guns shooting like 50 caliber balls, mm. but they're not, you know, I wanted to assure us that we would not be hit. They're sh shooting around. Said, you know, sometimes you see in movies like bullets go chi -chi 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 -chi, and the sand, you know, flips in. Mm -hmm. That's how, t for effect, you know. But assure us nobody would be hit. Don't worry. Okay. So we're, we finally, on the third day, we made the landing and we're stepping off the waters about this high, you know, and we're soaking wet. For three days, we were soaking wet, you know. So we're stepping off, and next to me, there was a young Marine, his name was O'Neill. He stepped off and he disappeared. I said, so I reached down and he's underwater. So I grabbed him by the nape, pulled him up, and he stepped in a hole. There was a hole in the sand. Oh, and he just happened to step in it. You know. <laughs> I pulled him up and he's choking. So I pulled him and we got to the beach. We ran into the beach. And as you know, in combat, you run for a while and you hit the deck. And then you get up and run again, hit the deck, you know. So, but we did that, we hit the deck at the edge of the water, where water is about this deep, you know. So we kept our face above the water, but the, most of the body's on. So I there, I'm holding the rifle. They gave us World War II uniforms and helmets and all that. So I'm there, and they assured us nobody will get injured. So I, I'm, and out of the corner of my eye, I noticed the Marine next to me was shot. Mm. And he's bobbing the water up and down, his neck was open, the round just cut his neck. You could see the grizzle and the, the blood and, and, and the cartilage and all that. And uh, so I grabbed him by the <coughs> collar. The guy's going to drown, so I pulled him up, and as pulling him up, turned out to be a dummy. <laughs> but the guy was so well made that until I grabbed him, I could have sworn it was a, an injured human. Yeah. Wow. And there were these were bobbing. He was anchored there, you know, so that he won't float away. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I thought it was. So finally, we made the landing scene and all that. Finally, the movie was made. It was a good movie. I have the movie. I actually, I got the movie at home, you know. Uh, there, there are a lot of good, good actors in it. Probably, Every big name back then was in that movie, I think, right? A lot, a lot of really famous actors were in that yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah. It was a lot, lot of famous. John Wayne and a whole bunch of guys. 
Джон Уэйн, Димитрий Дружинский. Anyway, seriously, seriously, a lot of, lot of good actors, you know. I don't think there are any female actresses, you know. Uh, there's like one or two women that are Germans, but all male, the, the Americans, uh, right. generals and corporals and colonels and, uh, uh, yeah, a lot of them are, uh, one guy was a famous cigar smoker, uh, he always smoked a cigar, you know. Uh, uh, anyway, so, that, that is very, very interesting. So for three days, we got talking with, finally we made the movie and the landing, and it was interesting. Uh, afterwards, uh, we were walking on the beach, and uh, my patrol, uh, my recon patrol, went on a patrol, and uh, we were coming back, and the, the Germans used to get these uh, big logs, like telephone poles, and they used to put three of them like that together, and bolt them together, put them on the beach to prevent f vehicles and right. tanks from coming in. They also used to take uh, I-beams, you know, what's an I-beam, mm -hmm. you know, big metal part, and also weld them together like that and put them there to prevent those bogs coming. Uh, and used to put mines on. Anyway, so we're coming from a patrol, we're hot and sweaty, and uh, my so so platoon sergeant leaned against one of those uh, big uh, wooden Obst things. Obstacle, and, yeah. yeah. He, he leaned against him like and the thing bent and he fell. It turned out to be they're made of styrofoam. All these metal things and the wood, big hunks of wood, they're nothing but styrofoam painted and made like, I mean, until you touch them, you, you swear it, it's yeah. a real, you know, huh. it, it's amazing what they do in movies, you know. Uh, that was a funny story. The, the, another thing is, as a thank you for allowing the Marines to do it for three days. I mean, it was soaking wet. It was rough on us, you know, right. because we come back, uh, everything soaking wet, we had to wash our weapons. For me, uh, you know, it, well, for all of us, it, it was hard, you know. And the next day you have to do it again. They have to, so, so then this Daryl Zanuck, Daryl Zanuck uh, wanted to thank us and he offered uh, to give, uh, I don't know, a few thousand dollars for the, to the Marines, you know, for, allowed the Marines to do it. Uh, the commander refused it, you know. So Dal Zanuck said, okay, how about if I give you a thousand cases of beer for the men? <laughs> you know, they, they did three days of real tough stuff and all that, and, and that son of a gun, let's say, uh, not, we did not say gun, we said something else, but he refused that. I, I mean, we couldn't believe it, why? Why? I mean, let the troops have a beer, a couple of beers, right. you know, for doing three days soaking wet and all that. No, he turned us down, so we're very, very disappointed, you know. But what can you do? That's, uh, that's life, and that's uh, some leadership is good leadership, some leadership could be better. <laughs> that was a bad decision by, by the commander. <laughs> we all thought so, yeah, yeah, yeah very sure. bad. Yeah. And, and, and I don't see why. What, for the Hollywood guy, a thousand cases of beer is uh, like for us buying a good cigar or something, you know. But, but for the troops, it would have been great because what we went through, you know, for three days. Yeah. No, I turned yeah. us down. Would so. have been great for your morale, I'm sure. Uh, morale and everything yeah. else, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, we don't, didn't expect to get paid or anything, but this is like a thank you thing, you know. So. Right. No, I turned us down. So that, that's an interesting story also, you know. Uh, you know, the, the more I think about my career, you know, I can't believe that I've done so many good, great things, you know, and so many interesting incidents and uh, stories, you know. I think we've only scratched the surface here today. Oh, barely. Yeah. Barely. You scratch it with the 
gloves, you know? <laughs> not even nails. Yeah. Well, I'm writing. I started writing the second book, uh, but you see, the first book was my life experiences. Right. The second book is my FBI work, and uh, and I'm halfway through. Oh, good. Uh, so I'm, I uh, recently I stopped writing it for a while, and now I just picked it up again and I started writing. As a matter of fact, last two days I wrote two and a half pages already. You know, for but I'm about probably halfway through the book already. Yeah, let us that, know. That should be interesting. And uh, I'm thinking, of, the day before yesterday, I was thinking of what would be a good title for that, you know. And uh, uh, anyway, so, but that should be interesting. That's because that's about FBI work and FBI cases. And, yeah. and I mentioned a lot of the cases I've talked about and many that I've not talked about. You know, but this book uh, about the... Uh, Fool's Mate, right. I highly recommend. Then I, I called this, I caught this, uh, another army guy. You know? <laughs> I'm not picking on the army, but uh, <laughs> they did it themselves. You know? uh, I nailed a guy in uh, Florida. His name is Trofimov, George Trofimov. Right. Yeah. And he, you know, he became a full colonel, full colonel. In the, the reserves. Yeah. In the, in the, yeah, in the army. Yeah. That's the highest army uh, officer. American army officer that we ever arrested for espionage, you know? Crazy. Colonel Trofimov, yeah. What did Full, he do? Uh, selling secrets to the Soviets. Soviets, yeah. Uh, he was selling secrets for about 30 years, you know? uh, 20, 25 years, I think. And he got, we estimate about $300,000 uh, from the Russians. But, wow. he, he, you know, espionage doesn't pay, you know? People, you hear like some, this guy made 300000 and Another guy maybe have a couple million or something like Ames. I don't know how much, you mean. but most of them make peanuts. You know, it, 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 it doesn't seem worth it. Absolutely not. You know, aside from the terrible thing that they do for the nation right. and their families and themselves, and all what they get paid for it is really, really not worth it. You know, uh, how many um, do you think went without being caught? How many went? Yeah, Gosh, I don't know. I hope not too many, but I'm sure a lot. You know, it's, with our free, open society, you know, in the mm -hmm. United States, it's a lot easier than in other countries, you know. And uh, and there's only one Dimitri. And no, not not any longer. Dimitri's out of the right. Yeah. Out of, Dimitri's out of the game. Yeah. No. Well, no. Talk about uh, only Dimitri. Before, while I was still in the height of doing these things, like I mentioned before, a lot of times I. I used to travel around the country here to do jobs, you know, and also a lot of times around the world. And so quite often I was not here. And some of these cases, if somebody calls or something, we find out about someone, sometimes you have to, to react immediately. Because if you don't, he might pass the package to the other side and you lose it. You right. know? So, so what we did was uh, I suggested that we get a few agents uh, who has some Russian background, who studied in college or Monterey or somewhere. They don't have to be fluent, but have some knowledge of Russian. So we selected about four or five. Remember Gusperti, uh, Al Gusperti, you know? Anyway, uh, oh, one guy became actually our ASAC eventually, uh, Sullivan. Remember Sullivan? 
our Isaac Sullivan, yeah, he was one of my students when he was still street agent. So we selected about uh, four four guys, and I started giving them some like little lectures. You know, we let them listen to some tapes of of jobs that I've done, cases that I've done, just to get them familiarized of what's going on and how to do it. And I gave them some pointers and talked, and so that if I'm not there, if they need somebody, he can jump. One of them can jump in, and at least do it temporarily until I come back or something like that. You know. So I trained uh, about five, four of them. Uh, and uh, but I did I, I did just about all of them and and I became so well known uh, after a while that people called me from around the United States somebody from California oh Dimitri we hear you do this I have uh, this case can you come and help me and my policy was always I never turned anybody down unless I was involved in something else if I'm involved in something else and I cannot go I tell them no. But other than that, I never turned anybody down. I was always willing to help. And so I went to California, I went all, all over the country, you know, in different places. Uh, uh, and then also overseas. And then uh, I, I, then US Air Force Intelligence asked me, Army, US Army Intelligence asked me to help them. Uh, uh, who, who else? The, the, uh, the Navy, Navy people asked me to do jobs for them. You know, I did some jobs on them, like on some army guys, Navy. But sometimes they asked me to help them. Right. You know, like one time, uh, the army had uh, the National Security Agency had a listening post in Berlin, right, in Germany. Yep. So they found out that one of the guys there was in cahoots with the Soviets, and what happened was. He was he was an army guy working for the NSA there again army sorry <laughs> but uh, he decided to to do something with the Soviets so he wrote a letter to the Soviet consulate in Marseille France mm. see he was in Berlin but in Marseille France and he melted the letter well unbeknownst to us what or maybe we knew I don't know but the the French when they knew it was sent by an American soldier to the Soviets, they opened his letter, and they and they found the disk that found the letter, you know, and so they turned it over to the CIA. The CIA turned it to the Army, and the U.S. Army, and of course Army espionage. They got me involved because they knew I do the false flags, so they asked for me to fly to Berlin to hit on that guy, and uh, so I did. And uh, so I hit on him, and he was a flaky guy, kind of, his name was Maherin, uh, kind of flaky guy, and finally I'd ask him to come to meet me someplace. I'd come there, I'd wait for him, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, half an hour, he would not come, then i leave, and then i called him, call him later and say, where were you? He said, oh, I came there. But the son of a gun, what he used to do is to come a half hour earlier, hang around for half an hour less, and leave, instead of coming at the appointed time when we're supposed to meet. Finally, I nailed them. We got together. I got him in the coffee shop, and we sat and talked. The gist of the thing was, what he wanted to do. He was just a silly thing. He wanted to do, start something like a pen pal uh, system, to to have people correspond, Americans correspond with people in, in Soviet Union. You know, mm. they don't know each other, but put them together somehow. You know. So he got a whole bunch of names and addresses and telephone numbers of Americans 
American military people and others in, in Berlin and other places, and he put them in the disc and he won't send them to the Soviets. So, so for the Soviets, that's a, from intelligence point of view, that's a, uh, like a gift, you know, because they, they can target all these people, you know, right. and they know where they work and their names and addresses and telephone. Terrible, terrible. So, so I went on him and then I found out all that. And so I told him, uh, so he said, oh, I sent it to your people, you know, when he sent the letter to Marseille, France, you know. I, I said to him, well, listen, I'm, I just came from Washington, again, not Washington, right. Washington, and I'm on my way to Moscow tomorrow. Can you get me a copy of that thing that you did so I can deliver it right away? Because by the time people, my people in Marseille get it and they sent it to Moscow, it'll be maybe two, three weeks. This way I'm going there tomorrow. I can deliver it tomorrow. He said, oh, yeah, sure, I can do it. I can make you a copy. So he made me a copy of the disc. And so, of course, I got it to the army guys, you know, to check. And that's what it turned out to be, all, you know. So, of course, I, I don't think they decided to prosecute it. They just sent him backstage. Right. And I, I guess they kicked him out of the army. You know, I'm sure they I did. I mean, a yeah. stupid thing like that, you know. Uh, they, I guess they could prosecute him if they wanted to. But uh, anyway, so while I was there, they asked me to do another job. For, so this is going to the to Berlin. The U.S. Army asked me to go to Berlin to do a false flag for them, you know. Then while I was there, I went to the wall, of course, and there was an opening in the wall. At that time, we were still enemies. There was an opening in the wall, enough, if you went sideways, you could go through. So I, I saw there was a German soldier on the other side standing there, and they had orders to shoot if somebody came in. Yeah, yeah. They, they didn't mess around, you know. And so what I did was, when he turned away a little bit, I went through the wall, actually it was 100% on their soil, and came back again. Just to say that I went into East Berlin. <laughs> and I did go, but I didn't say that. And, and, and our American uh, guys in intelligence, in intelligence said, they're telling me, let's see, we, we go there sometimes officially, you know, they're allowed to go. They, they used to go to the checkpoint right. officially. And the Germans allowed them to come and all that. And they'd go there. Sometimes they'd do shopping because things were much cheaper there. Right. In East Berlin, and come back. You know. They said, would, would you want to go with us? I said, no, no. No, of course, I had a diplomatic passport. And you know, if I get caught, they'll send me to Siberia or somewhere. Uh, you know. Anyway, so and at that time, I got interested in a, uh, an air rifle. Not a BB gun, but a real air rifle. And they said, oh, yeah, the Germans make a pretty good one. And it's like one third of the price of what you pay in the United States, come with us, you can buy one. I said, no, no, I don't think so. I never went, but I walked in and out. You know. And then I went to the other end of the wall and there was a piece of uh, uh, bar, uh, like ray bar, yeah. uh, uh, hanging out, and a big hunk of wall on it. So I worked on it, worked, worked, broke off the rebar and brought that big hunk of concrete with me from the wall. I still have a piece of it in my garage, you know. Oh, wow. And so when I came home, uh, it, it was sort of like this and then pointed. So I, I uh, you, know, uh, you know, sort of cut it on one end to make it a uh, reasonable piece. And the other piece, I broke it into little pieces. And when I came back to my office in the FBI, people knew I was... Went to the wall. I said, "You." I said, "You want a piece?" Oh yes, yes. Please. Everybody's coming to meet you. Let me have a piece. So I was giving the little pieces, but everybody got the little piece of the wall, you know. Uh, and I still have the big hunk. 
And I, I saw one time uh, one of the... Oh, you got one, Al? He has two. Too. You got two? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I gave to several people. So uh, one, one time I saw one guy, one army intelligence officer was stationed there and then he was coming back to the States. Uh, so they gave him a plaque, a going away plaque. And what they did was they took a piece of uh, that wall like I have and they mounted it on the wooden plaque and they spray painted it, you know, sprayed it because we found out that the, that wall had a lot of asbestos in it. Mm. So you didn't want to have a big hunk in your house, you know, I, mine is in the garage, you know. So, but what I, I got that idea, but I might do it one day, was maybe drill a couple holes in the back, put it on a plaque, but then uh, seal it with the like silicone or something. So right. the fumes will not come out from the uh, asbestos, you know, right. and then put maybe a date when I was there or something. You know. But but that was interesting. So I brought the wall and and I went in and out. But I, I didn't want to go and might get caught and God knows what will happen, you know, yeah. because the Germans, you can never tell what they decide to do. The East Germans, you know. Uh, uh, wow. Any more stories? Anything else? Uh, please tell me. I'm, I'm, uh, we're going to bring you back on. Yeah. Bring me back where? Yeah, we'll bring you back on another episode. Just like that? Bring me, what am I, a doll or something? <laughs> bring me back, take me home, bring me back. What, a, what am I, a pet? <laughs> I, I wanted to ask your thoughts uh, on the how technology has been changing the world recently, and it's, especially with regard to espionage. Like, how, how do you think it's different from when you were doing it um, or when you were catching those who did it uh, than it is today. Okay, now I have one interesting piece of information about that, the technology that the Soviets used. Uh, I don't know if you guys know that the Soviet, the KGB, that in their training academy and what they, whatever they call it, they had a school for uh, people to uh, entice people from another place. So they had females, they had nice, beautiful, well-shaped girls, and they trained them, and they called them to be swallows. They called them swallows, like mm. the bird swallows. They made a movie recently about yeah, that. Yeah, the swallows. And so they'd send this girl against, like let's say, some guys traveling, say in Berlin or somewhere, they'd send this girl, and she would seduce him seduce him and eventually get secrets from him or get him in a compromised situation where they film them together and then they they can have him re reveal secrets you know right they also had males who would, were trained and uh, they they were called the ravens and these males were to seduce women but some of the males were trained to seduce other men homosexual men you know so they used to do two things one for homosexuals and one for straight uh, women, seduced women. And there was a very good incident in uh, one time there was the French ambassador to Moscow, I think, I think to Moscow, yeah, was was very high level uh, French official, of course, ambassador, very good close friend to de Gaulle, Charles de Gaulle. And he was there with his wife and running the embassy and all. One day uh, there was a, a, like a picnic and so the ambassador was invited there and there was a wife and all. And the Russians sent one of the swallows and one of the ravens there. And, and so then they went also, had a little uh, cruise on a boat and all. And so the, the raven targeted the ambassador's wife and the swallow targeted the ambassador. And then, uh, but 
They're not giving in to them. So then the ambassador had to leave earlier and his wife stayed with the party there at the, the picnic. While the ambassador driving back, the, the swallow was sent ahead of time and they knew the road that he was taking. So she, they stopped the car along the way there. And she came out and waved at the car and turned out to be the ambassador's car. They knew it was the ambassador's car. And they said, oh, our car is broken down. I can't get... And so, she, uh, of course, she had met the ambassador at the party, said, oh, I need to get back to Paris. I can't sit here all night. You know, Can you please? I said, of course, you know, being a gentleman, he took her. And one thing led to another. He fell in, fell for her. Mm. Wound up going to bed with her and all that. The, the raven kept working on his wife, and he seduced her also. So they seduced the ambassador and the wife, and, they, and the ambassador started to produce information to them. Later on, somehow, the Western intelligence somehow found out about it, and the French found out about it. And so the ambassador was recalled, he and his wife were recalled back to Paris. And because he was a good friend of Charles de Gaulle, Charles de Gaulle called him in, and he, he sent, uh, let's say his name is Jacques, uh, the ambassador's name is Jacques. So, uh, so the de Gaulle told him, well, Jacques, what, we sleep, we sleep around? That's all he said, you know, and then they led him away, you know. Of course, he was kicked out of the government and all that. I don't know if he was put in prison or what, you know. But, but so that's what the talk about different techniques that they use and all that. That, mm. that was officially, they had these girls and guys trained to do. But one thing, uh, I have a paper, I think I still have the paperback. It's a small a paper called Sexpionage. Mm. <laughs> Sex used in, in a space. Right. And it's, it's all mostly about the, the Soviets, what they do. And one of the things that they developed was very interesting was they developed a, a nipple, a nipple that they used to glue onto a woman's nipple, but that nipple had a transmitter in it. Oh, wow. It's very, very small, very sophisticated. It had to be very, very small, you know. And the nipple had to be the same texture as the real nipple, you know. Right. So that if... The guy, let's say, puts his mouth on a nipple. You won't tell that it's artificial, you know. And yet there was a transmitter in it. And would transmit, uh, as she's in bed with the guy, if he's telling her some classified material, whatever, they would be next door listening to it, you know. Uh, talking about technology. Yeah. yeah that's, but that's high technology because it has to be so small, mm. so sophisticated. And, and uh, you know the the material and the the transmitter. You know? Yeah, uh, it, it's amazing, you know. But uh, you know, of course, I came across. Uh, I learned about uh, all kinds of electronics and d d devices, and uh, you know, like pin cameras and uh, or a little uh, clip that you put on your uh, uh, tie that right. can take pictures and uh, I mean, all kinds of things. You know. Yeah. Nice, Dimitri. Uh, uh, tell us about your family. Tell me about your, tell, tell us about your family. Which one? The FBI family, the Marine family, you, you, or my your, fa your uh, biological family. My biological. Well, I'm. Uh, I was married for about thirty years to my first wife, and we have uh, four children: three boys and a girl. And uh, my uh, one son lives in uh, here in Northern Virginia. Two, two of them, and one in uh, Richmond, Virginia. Uh, or, or uh, he's the one I know, Peter. Yeah, right. in 
what do you call that place? Uh, Mechanics. Mechanicsville, yeah, thank yeah. you. And then my daughter lives in just outside Dallas, Texas. Mm. And I'm lucky to have eight grandchildren. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's great. So the, the, the Rzhinsky family is growing a little bit. Now, my, I have a brother and sister. My sister passed away already. So she was out of the picture as far as propagating the Drzhinsky name, you know, as a female. My brother got married, but he never had children. Uh, he married a woman with two daughters, and they decided to... So I was the only one doing it. So I, I did my job. I have three sons. One... <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, one son, uh, Peter, has two sons. So that's... My first son, Dimitri, has a daughter. So that doesn't count. My, my young... <laughs> For yeah, passing the name on. Yeah, that yeah, doesn't yeah, count, the... count to... Propagate right. the name. Right. My my daughter, of course, doesn't have doesn't count. But my youngest son, Matthew, he has a son. Okay. So now I have three grandsons. You know, three sons and three grandsons to hopefully, I hope that my other grandsons propagate a lot of more grandsons, <laughs> great grandsons <laughs> to get the name out. The name to you going. I'm the only one carrying the name. You know. Right. Uh, that's that's quite a burden. You know. <laughs> anyway, so. Yeah, and so uh, thank God, I, my wife and I brought up our children very, very well. They're very, as you know, Peter, they're very good, very well uh, brought up. Uh, they believe in God and the country, and they're, they're very, very decent people, uh, very nice people. Uh, so thank God they're uh, honest people. And uh, I, like I said, over the years I taught them how to do things also because uh, as I was working on something, whether I was working years ago, I used to work on my cars. I had I used to have a Chevy at one time and a Ford at one, you know, and I did my own tune-ups and changing belts. And as a matter of fact, on on my uh, Ford, one time I even changed the gas tank. You know, oh, my wow. old gas tank sprung a leak, and so also I filled it up, and also gas is gushing. So I put two big containers, two big pots, open, open big pots of gas, gasoline. So I didn't know what to do. So uh, I was talking to one of the agents at, uh, at, in my office. And I said, just go to a, 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 an old, with the old cars, you know, uh, just get, get a, buy a tank similar to your cars. So I went there, I called them. They said, yeah, we have one. So the, the car was damaged, but the tank was fine. So they removed the tank. I brought it home, removed my old one. And it's very easy to, mm. at that time, it was very easy to replace. I removed the old tank, put the new one, and had it for years, running for years until I sold the car, you know. Yeah, that's awesome. So anyway, but uh, I also used to do tune-ups and things like that, you know, a lot of it. And I used to buy tools. I love tools. And I had, even now I have a big collection of tools. So I used to buy tools, and uh, a lot of times instead of having a job done in the garage, I'd buy a tool and fix it, do it myself, you know. And, and so after a while I started to have my kids come uh, have me watch, have them watch me doing something. Sometimes I'd help, have them help me, you know. And, and so, but over the years, they learned a lot of things. And of course, telling them stories that are in the book, you know, right. how we did this, how they made that. And plus a lot of the tool, toys that they inherited and things that I had made for them. And sometimes they used to help me, you know. So uh, thank God they all are like that. You know, all my three sons are like that. They're very, very handy. Very good. There's, uh, you know, Peter does a lot of work in his house and all that. Right, right. Uh, and also hunting and fishing. I used to love to hunt and fish. I used to go a lot. Uh, never shot it, never killed a deer. I shot at some deer, but uh, never 
killed one. Uh, Peter keeps inviting me to come and uh, he said, Dad, you just can go up in one of my trees right in my backyard. <laughs> then you walk around there and shoot, get shoot. Mm -hmm. But then recently I was thinking about, although like I was a hunter from way back, from childhood, hunter and fisherman. But then I, recently I was thinking about it. Okay, now, do I want to go shoot a deer? Why? Do I need the meat? Not really, you know. Right. Just to say that I killed a deer? Do I have to shoot a deer just to say that I killed a deer? Uh, I don't know. So I'm, I'm not that anxious anymore to go kill the deer. It's like some people go to Africa or some, to kill a lion or, or, or rhinoceros or uh, some, just to say they killed one. So wh why? Why kill this such a big, beautiful animal? Just to say that he killed it. Right. Okay, if you kill it for food, oh yeah. Like fish, when I used to fish, if I caught a fish that I could keep and eat, I'd bring it back, yeah. If not, I'd take it off, throw it back in the water, you know. Why, why kill the fish if, if I'm not going to eat it, you know? Uh, just, to, just to kill a fish and say I killed it. Uh, so, anyway, so that's, uh, but, I, but I grew up with animals, you know. As I say in the book, uh, my, my dad and my mom, we had animals and we had cats and dogs and the pigeons and my dad used to raise pigeons and rabbits like I have in the story in the book uh, where the crow on the on the page of on the cover of the book you know right. that's a pet pet crow you know Pushinka. Uh, no 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 that's uh, that no, Pichinka was another one Pichinka. Uh, Pichinka was a sparrow uh, okay. Pichinka and then Gulinka was a pigeon oh yeah Gulinka Gulinka the pigeon Pichinka is a sparrow but the crow was uh, what do they call him uh, Charlie the crow or something like that I think I when I wrote the book, I gave a name. We didn't have names for that. Pichinka and Gulika had the names for them. I used to call them that, mm -hmm. and they used to respond to me. But the crow, I didn't have a name for him until I wrote the book. I gave him a name. Char I think Charlie the Crow, you know. Right. Uh, anyway, so we had uh, rabbits. Uh, we had the uh, songbirds with finches and canaries, you know. Uh, what else? Uh, we had, uh, one time we had a... Uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, like, like a rabbit, a uh, uh, little animal that some people have as a pet. Uh, guinea pig? Bear, guinea pig, yeah, guinea pig. Uh, I, had, I had lizards when I made the zoo, remember? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yep. I made the zoo, we had some lizards in there. <laughs> uh, I used to hunt, I used to shoot lizards, you know, I used to hunt bats, you know, bats, you know. Uh, you know, they fly, uh, we used to have a place in Jericho and we had the orange trees and you know citrus trees and then some other trees in the house and the bats used to fly in a in a certain pattern pattern you know and so one time I decided what uh, I got a long piece of bamboo about seven feet long and it stand it right in the pattern as it climbed going over I'd stand like that and the bat is coming and swing at him and they're very quick most of the time they zig around it but sometimes I catch him in the wing or the head and he'll fall down and so I knocked down, uh, I think, a couple, and, and they're like that. They can't do anything. But you try to poke them with the skin. Uh, they try to bite you. They look like a mouse, like a re mouse, you know, yeah. because their teeth, you know, they can bite you, you know. Uh, and they can carry ra rabies or something like that. But, uh, so we had all kinds of birds and animals and everything uh, over the years, you know. And uh, so, and of course, the cats and the pigeon and the, the uh, sparrow, mm -hmm. the pichinka and gulinka, you know. And the crow, the crow, you know the story about the crow. That's, a, that's the first story in the book, the crow. Yeah. 
My, my brother shot him, actually, you know. We were very, very good with slingshots, you know. My brother was deadly with it. And I was almost as good as he was. And a lot of kids, that's what we did. We hunted with because we could buy guns or anything, you know. So we hunted with it, we plinked with it, we sometimes we fought with it. We did all kinds of things with it. So my, my brother used to bring a lot of game, and uh, one time he shot this uh, crow, and uh, he hit him in the elbow and uh, broke his wing. And so the crow, of course, fell, and my brother caught him, brought him home. Well, the, the wing was broken, so he cut off the part. Uh, but if, he could not fly after that, you know. So my brother put him in the cage where the, where the pigeons and the rabbits. It was a walking, big walking cage. And so he's living there and uh, he's doing fine. And my dad had rabbits and, uh, you know, the rabbits, they're uh, gnaws. They like to gnaw on things, chew on things, you know, like squirrels and like uh, some other animals, you know. Uh, so my dad, uh, we, but the, the, the rabbits were in, in cages. He had wooden cages with screen in front and uh, screen on the bottom so that the droppings would go through. And then he fed them, of course. And the, the, the pigeons flew around in that walking cage, big cage. They had their, their own little boxes where they slept, you know. And, and we raised them for, for eating, you know, eating the pigeons and eating the rabbits. Uh, they're delicious. So my brother put that crow in there. And, one, and my dad had a, a deal with a friend of his who had, a, who had a small restaurant. My dad told him, listen, whenever you have bread, when people finish eating, if there is clean bread, no, no butter or gravy in it or anything, just clean bread, throw it all in a sack, bird up sack, let it dry up, and I'll come once in a month and take it, you know. And so the guy said, and I think my dad used to give him some money, you know. And so my dad used to bring them, and the reason for it was, the rabbits loved that wood, uh, that hard bread, because if you don't give them anything to chew, they'll chew wood, you know, right. they, they have to chew. You know? So they used to feed them the bread, and they loved that, and also they made them nice and plump for eating. So one day my dad is standing there with a the sack, and he's feeding the rabbits bread, and he felt something tugging at the pant leg of his trousers, you know. And he looked, and there was a crow pulling his... So my dad didn't know what he wants, you know, he's just pulling... So my dad is holding a piece of dry bread. So he gave him the piece of bread. The crow took it, mm. took it, and he was smart. He ran to the big bowl of water that went for the pigeon, threw the bread in there, soaked it, and ate it. He could not eat it dry because it was right. very hard. Too hard. Yeah. But he soaked it, ate it, and then it became a routine. My dad and the crow, they became buddies, you know. The, he come to feed the uh, rabbits. The crow would come in, give him a piece of bread, go soak it, and eat it. It was, we thought it was a very cute uh, situation yeah, there, yeah, yeah. Uh, very symbiotic situation, well, you know. Yes. And, uh, and and we loved it, and uh, my dad enjoyed it very much. It was a little buddy there. Uh, uh, so one time, uh, one time, my brad, uh, my brother came from school, and he had uh, some finches in a cage, and he had them hanging hanging close to a tree, you know. And, uh, outside the tool shed, you know. And he looked and the birds were not there. When he went to school, the birds were there. When he came back, I think he had two or three birds, they're not there. So he didn't know, so he got closer and there was a big snake in there. Mm. The snake could slither between the bars of the cage and he ate, the, he swallowed the, the, the birds. But then after he swallowed him, he couldn't get out because he was it's too big. Too big. <laughs> 
and he was trapped. And so my brother, like I said, was deadly with the slingshot. He took the slingshot and shot him in the head and killed him mm. right in the cage, right through the bars. So that was an episode. Another time he had another also birds and another snake got in and ate the birds. This time it was a nice big snake. This time my brother, instead of killing it, took the whole cage, went to the zoo. My brother also loved animals, you know, like we all did you. Went to the local zoo. And he brought the cage and told them, would you guys like to have a snake, you know, for free? They said, okay, so they took it. They could use it always, you know. So, so he said, uh, they said, what do you want? He said, uh, how about you give me a free pass to go look around the zoo? So I gave him a free pass. So he gave him the snake, he got the free pass, had a nice time looking around the zoo and all, then came, got the cage and came back home again. <laughs> uh, wow. Anyway, yeah. It's, it's interesting. Uh, oh, talk about snakes. One time, my, my, we had a small house there in Jerusalem before the war. And outside our house, on one side, there was a small garden, just a little bit bigger than this room. And mostly it was flowers. My dad planted flowers. But then a little farther away, on the other side of this big yard, he had a big garden, a bigger garden. And he planted some fruit trees, and some uh, peaches, and some other a uh, couple of other trees and then he also had artichokes and, uh, and there are a lot of flowers you know and uh, what he used to do is to get these big metal cans and fill them with dirt and plant flowers in them and he built a wall on, on the two sides of that garden and he put those cans on the wall you know so it, it looked very nice and he used to sell flowers sometimes to a florist you know so anyway one day my dad picked up one of these cans and he felt something hitting his hand and he looked and there was a snake. The snake was under the can, and when he picked up the can, the snake was trying to bite him. But because he was holding the can, the heavy metal the thing, his skin was too tight, and the snake could not bite him. You know, it was so it's hitting, trying, but it did not bite him. And so he fell down. And my dad put the can down, took a shovel, hit the snake, and cut off one third of the snake from the tail. Oh, sorry. It's okay. From the tail back, cut off the snake. And the snake that sort of slithered away, you know. Yeah. Okay, my dad, my dad forgot about it. One day, my dad working there, he used to like to work there in the garden after work, you know. He loved to come home, change, go work there. He loved to do that. And uh, he was working there, and a snake came out. It was a snake that he cut off. It, was, it stayed alive, but was much shorter. But you could see when he cut him <laughs> off, he said, Lani Galanda, it was a snake. Wow. Same snake, yeah. Talking about snake stories, you know. Wow. Dang. Well, well, this has been uh, very informative. We've really enjoyed speaking to you tonight. We are deeply appreciative and thankful for your service you to this country. You want me to stop now? I'm just warming up. <laughs> <laughs> we thank you for your service. Hey, the Marine Corps and the FBI. Uh, very, my pleasure. very much. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dimitri. Thank we you. Really thank you. And now what are you going to do with this valuable information here? <laughs> Tell the world. You, you, want to, you want to explain it? With this, with this recording? Yeah. We put it on the internet so that anybody can go and listen to it. So it'd be what? Going worldwide? Worldwide. My God. Anybody who wants to can go and just click listen. Wow. And they'll be able to hear this conversation. I hope I didn't say anything that I should not have said. <laughs> I don't think you did. No, I don't think yeah. so. No. I will, I'll send it to you first so you can listen to it. Oh, and yeah. And if you don't like parts can, of it. You can give me a copy? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'd, cool. I'd, I'd love that. Uh, I'd love to. Can I take this off yes. now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Can done. you hear me now?
Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I'd love to have a copy, yeah, but uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure this will be fine because I don't think I said anything that... Uh, I'm very mindful yeah. of that, you know. Yes. And like I said before, are we still recording? Yeah. yeah. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. No, it's okay. I'm not, I'm not saying anything that I shouldn't... Uh, okay. Well, we can it's keep it's going. off now? No. <laughs> oh. If you don't tell him directly.